0: Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and Medhab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I have the pleasure... To meet and speak with someone that I've I've admired for quite some time never connected with him but just recently decided to reach out to him and sure enough he responded and here we are I am with Erwan LaCour who is the founder of MoveNet and for those of you that have never looked into what MoveNet is I highly recommend first off gonna say it right up front you have to visit movnat.com you have to look at this site, especially if you're into obstacle racing. This is something that really needs to be on your radar. Erwin, please say hello to our audience.
1: Hello, everyone. Pleased to be here.
0: So, Erwin, just for the sake of those that don't know about you and what you do, can you give us just a little bit of a brief background on what you're doing and how it came about?
1: When I was a kid, I was a kid you know, I used to move a lot in nature, actually. Nature was right there. And um, I would climb boulders, I would climb trees, I would run up and down hills, I would crawl under those those rocks and fallen trees. And that's what I used to do. Then I grew up doing uh, multiple types of sports or, or, or physical disciplines. But then I always reverted back to that idea of natural movement, even through specific sports, for instance, uh, instead of playing tennis, I would rather do a bit of rock climbing instead of uh, another another sport that would be maybe less practical. I would do the sports that involve the practical, natural movements. And then, um, later in, uh, in my life, I realized that um, an approach to to fitness or to physical education or to to real life movement competency did not really exist um, in the modern times, even though it used to exist in the past a lot. When you study the history of physical education, you realize that entire systems and programs were completely based on the 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 general practice of All these natural movement skills. We're talking about running. Of course, we're talking about jumping, climbing, balancing, crawling, lifting and carrying heavy objects. And I decided that I was going to bring that back to to the modern world. And then I created MoveNet.
0: Very cool. Now, through some of the videos I saw you perform, I want to try to paint a picture if I could. Obviously enough, you're in this natural environment, and you tend to train as sparsely dressed as possible, just some shorts, barefoot, no shirt, and when you run over these natural surfaces, there's no encumbrance. It seems like it's just natural function. It's almost like grabbing something with your hands. You don't think about it. You're just capable of doing what your body would naturally do if it was given the option of being what it was designed to do, just being normal. You you made the reference, and I, I've been teasing people all day, and I'll probably title this episode, Are You a Zoo Human? And you made reference to, uh, and I think a couple of interviews I've heard you say, that we are essentially living in boxes, and you know the, our existence these days as the civilized society that we live in We have gotten away from all these natural functions that we were we were blessed with. And can you touch on that a little bit? Just this whole concept of zoo humans and what can we do realistically to get away from that mindset?
1: Being a zoo human, that's that's a metaphor for being divorced from nature, but also being personally disconnected with one one's own biology and you know, natural potential for movement. It's not just the disconnect with the nature outside what we call the environment. It's also the disconnect with the nature within our biological needs for healthy food, fresh air, uh, natural lights, natural environments, and obviously the natural behaviors, uh, including natural movement. So the more, um, The more disconnected uh, from from all of that, the more you are what I call a zoo human. It's like if you live in a zoo. Um, So the strategy is to first realize that predicament. And number two is to indeed devise a strategy so that you can embrace more natural ways of living your life with, of course, the benefits of becoming stronger, healthier, happier, more free, more resilient, more creative because that's, you know, a natural lifestyle, that's not a, that's not an option. Biologically speaking, that's like a, du- a duty, it's like a biological duty. In our, our modern lifestyle, we see, we see it as an option. You have the option of, say, living in a highly polluted, highly stressful city, or living in nature. That's optional. But from a biological standpoint, what your nature, what your DNA, what your evolutionary makeup expects from you is indeed uh, all these natural stressors, all these natural environments, and also all these natural behaviors. It means that you participate into that natural lifestyle. It just, it's, it's not just an environment, it's also made of your perception and behavior. So that's the idea. And um, it involves multiple aspects of lifestyle. Uh, and natural movement is, uh, in my opinion, one of the most potent way to reconnect to what I call that, that true nature.
0: I know that you're also pretty much a history buff where it comes to physical fitness and exercise, and I think that you've gathered a lot of your methods, at least, stimulated by uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Georges Perbert. How do you pronounce it? Uh,
1: If you pronounce uh, French style, then you say Georges Perbert, and if Pronounce American style, then you say George Hebert. Okay.
0: As I was researching some of your site, I, I came across this, and then I dug deeper, and I came across the Practical Guide of Physical Education that was uh, written in 1912 by this gentleman, and I was fascinated by some of the thinking that he professes in his training, and I was also very much taken back by the principles of natural running that he Uh, ascribed to, how we should make contact with the ground, the frequency in which we make contact with the ground, what part of the foot we should make contact with, and all these different functions. And I thought that was pretty fascinating because over a 100 years ago, here it was, someone was basically identifying that there is a way to run. And, you know, we think we know everything these days and we're, you know, us coaches are out here talking about the proper way to do things. And it's almost like it's a new trick we're trying to tell people. But in fact, 100 years ago, they were doing it, doing it well. And the other thing that I found interesting that kind of coincides with what you do, I think, is he talked about the amount of time that is needed to train to bring back these natural functionalities to become fit relative to what we would do if we lived outside of our boxes, so to speak, living in natural environments. So what I'm getting at is he, he would suggest that if we were just living off the land uh, as we were intended, the amount of time that we would need to to gather, to hunt, to to do the basic chores of life, is how you gain and maintain your fitness. And he suggested that we could, in fact, do exercises and it would take about an hour a day to do them effectively and it would equate to the same types of behaviors that we would if we were the natural hunter-gatherers, but the intensity would have to be greater to equal the amount of time in a given day to be natural. Do you think in those terms, or have I lost you?
1: Uh, actually, I I partially do, and at the same time I don't, so let me explain. Uh, well, so number one, George Hubert was a great uh he's still a great inspiration for me but he's actually it's not the only one and it's not the first uh actually George Bear himself drew a lot of in, of his inspiration and methods from predecessors from people who came before him um including the the, the, the German Jan or um uh the, the Swiss Pestalozzi or you know or the Spanish George uh uh not George but Amoros and others so the the history of physical education traces back to well probably the ancient Greeks but when it comes to uh uh Europe um uh, it starts with Mercurialis um and then other people. It's a long line of people. The, the idea is that this is a long line of people, and before exercise science, before the knowledge that we have gathered about uh, sports and kinesiology and biomechanics, etc., these people didn't have any of that. They didn't have video ana- analysis. Uh, they didn't know uh, anything about metabolic conditioning and all these aspects of science that are quite useful today, but yet they were getting amazing results. And one of the, uh, the trademark of these, these ancients, ancient approaches to physical training was that they were all based on practical movement, natural movement. And you may so that that includes again running and climbing and jumping and balancing and lifting and carrying. And you may say, well, they didn't know any anything better, they didn't know better. Well, do we today? Because eventually we're talking about the human being. And I believe that human beings should just function the most in the most natural way possible, which means that they need, need to move in the most natural ways possible. And that's what they used to do. And so we've invented uh, sports and specialized disciplines or fitness programs, and uh, I believe we've lost track of what makes us human, which is, in, for a big part, our natural abilities to move. So if I was to ask you what's the best way to train a tiger or uh, or an eagle, well, you don't you don't try to put them on a on a treadmill for cardio and try to isolate the muscles so that they can get, gain, you know, strength in some parts of their body. It wouldn't make any sense. That would be hilarious, actually. But the question is, why is it that it should be that different for us human beings? Why don't we understand that the overall practice of our evolutionary natural movement abilities should, should be the fundamental, the foundation for building optimally developed human beings, naturally athletic human beings. So that's the first point I I wanted to make. And the second point uh, to answer specifically specifically your question. Yeah, the idea of Georges Hebert was that well, a hundred years ago already, people were living in cities. People were working in factories. So it was already the the same kind of modern lifestyle that we have today Um, and with the same issues in terms of health, in terms of fitness, etc. And obviously, he he couldn't tell people, listen, you guys are going to have to go back to living in in nature, in the jungle or in the mountains so that you can be optimally fit. He would say, we need a strategy. So the strategies that we're going to going to compact, to gather, to synthesize not only the amount of movement that we normally would be doing in, in a natural setting, but also the variety of movements. So within an hour or so, every day, you're going to do a bit of running, a bit of jumping, a bit of balancing, a bit of climbing, a bit of crawling, a bit of lifting and carrying. You're going to do all the those diverse movements for about an hour every day, and then you can go about your your day-to-day life the rest of the time. And uh, so you were asking me if I subscribe to that approach or not. So yes and no. Yes, because, well, it, it would be hard to tell people uh, instead of training an hour, one hour, three times a week, or even better, an hour every day, you should do a little of movement Along, you know, throughout the day. Uh, sometimes people have no time at all. Sometimes they have 15 minutes. So, uh, you know, that's the the circumstances of day day to day life. You people are busy and they're busy with with other things than taking care of their biological needs. Uh, but ideally, uh, you you don't necessarily want to do uh, an hour of training a day. You want actually more frequency. Maybe less time, a few minutes, but more frequency throughout the day. The input has to be a bit more um, uh, consistent and uh, regular. That's my idea, optimally, but that's not always possible for everyone. So at least having a single session every day that would include a variety of natural movement patterns and positions and, and efforts, that's definitely a good thing to do. It's a good approach.
0: Well, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I talk about this a lot because in my life, in the work I do, I, as we speak right now, I'm sitting at my desk, and I will be at this desk for quite some time. And my wife will come up and bark at me to get up, walk away from it, you know, do a little something else, and then and then revisit because I'll get stuck here. And I, I, I share with you also that this morning I trained with a group in a park, and most of the things that we teach, or the type of training we do, are functional patterns. We don't just lift weights. We we try to use functional patterns, get the body to move. Uh, today's focus was primarily using a medicine ball, and the medicine ball was just to have some load as we went through a variety of range of motions. We did a lot of stretching. We did some running, and we did some uh, hanging, and some pulling and pushing. And all of which I did barefoot, and I convinced a few of my people to also shed their shoes. And when I get a chance, commonly even at the track, I'll have people on the infield, I'll have them shed their shoes and just kind of get a get a sense of the way the body responds and reacts to the ground and develop their feet. So I, I buy into all of that. The problem is even though I feel like the types of exercises I do being locked down to the very first thing in the morning, I destroy all the work I did by sitting at my desk for the rest of the day. So, absolutely, I agree with you that you you know you want to try to move this this exercise in and around your day, and it's probably far and away more effective, even if it's a matter of a few minutes at a time throughout the course of the day.
1: Right. For instance, um, like people want to want to squ- they want to improve their squat. That's great. They want to squat thirty minutes a day every day, like you're going to try to squat for 30 minutes. Not that it's not doable, but I would highly recommend that instead of doing that, you squat 15 times in a day for two minutes. I believe that's going to have much more impact and and it's going to be more effective than forcing yourself to squat 30 minutes in a row every day. Not only... It can be boring, um, but the idea is that the frequency of input when it comes to movement behavior is, is more important, most of the time is more important and potent than the volume or intensity. So when we're talking about 30 minutes in a row, we're talking about volume. But when we're talking about 30 times one minute or 15 times two minutes, Uh, Or 10 times 3 minutes. We're talking about frequency. And frequency is very important. Because every time you are going to tell your body through your behavior, you're telling the, the squatting frequently is going to be a behavior that is different than squatting once a day for 30 minutes. So the frequency of the behavior is an input that's going to have more impact. Because every time you're telling your body, you need to be ready any time to do that squat and to hold it for a minute, two, two or three minutes. Right. And there, there's going to be less resistance also, even mentally less resistance, because you're not telling yourself, oh, my God, I start now and I'll, st- I'll stop squatting in 15 minutes or 30 minutes.
0: Right. Well, 30 minutes isn't a functional movement pattern anyway. I mean, what 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 is it in your life that would, would call on you to... Squat up and down for thirty minutes. That's not a well, functional movement pattern.
1: Can, can I can I can I um, can I suggest a, a different term than a saying it's not a functional pattern? A squat is always going to be a functional pattern, regardless of the type of squat you do, or the environment where you do it, or the duration where you do it, if it's loaded or not. It's always a functional pattern, but. Um, I like to ask: Is squatting in a static fashion for 30 minutes is that a natural behavior for a human beings? Not natural. It it could it may happen sometimes, but most of the time you don't squat in a static fashion. You're gonna shift weight to the left, to the right, to the front, to the back. You're gonna tiptoe a little, so it basically transition from squatting to deep knee bend. Then maybe you're gonna uh, kneel. Uh, and then get back revert to your squat. We're going to stand, then go, get back to your squat. We're going to move a few steps away, and then you're going to squat in a place where the, the terrain is, is different and even. Therefore, all of your joints will be at a different angle, which also is going to be a different input that's more uh, engaging and more functional, actually, than just always squatting on a flat surface. So you see, a squat is not a squat. It's not always the same squat. So, squat is always functional, but is it done in ways that are natural, but resemble the practicality of movement that we once used to to have and do as human beings?
0: That's an interesting view. I, I guess it was saying the same thing, but you're right. When I think in terms of functional. I'm thinking about an application, and I I just wouldn't imagine that a natural application would be to squat, stand, squat, stand, squat, stand for 30 minutes in a row. Uh, I I don't know what that would be, Um, but uh, your application sounds to be a lot more entertaining and obviously more of a natural application. I I use that term.
1: All you have to do, um, you look at uh, young children and... um, uh their squat is amazing. I have two boys, they're one year old, three years old, their squat is amazing, but no, they I never found them stuck in a squat position for for not even for a minute. Um so they're constantly constantly switching from position to position. The problem I have with the word functional is that you end up with so called functional fitness programs where people try to replicate um, real-world applications or real-world uh, movement patterns. My question is, why are we even trying to replicate real-world patterns, real-world movement patterns, when we could just do them? We could just perform these movements. Why are we trying to do one single uh, balancing pattern on a BOSU and that's going to be the part of your functional program that has to do with balancing when you could just step out there and actually balance some stuff and explore so many more varieties of you know balancing positions balancing uh, techniques and movements, balancing transitions on diverse surfaces That is, to me, the real functional movement. And I call it natural movement. I call it practical movement. The problem with functional movement is that you end up with movements that are supposed to help in the real world, but they are limited. Because, say, you do one functional movement that has to do with balancing, and then you believe that you're ready for anything balancing in the real world. Well, the truth is that, no, my friend, you're not ready this will give you a false sense of preparedness and competency because the truth is that balancing standing is not the same as balancing in a split squat or in a deep knee bend. Balancing barefoot is not the same as balancing with shoes and balancing on the round surface is not the same as balancing on a flat surface. Balancing on the instable surface is not the same as balancing on a stable surface. Balancing on Um, a surface that gives you tons of friction and another surface that is very smooth and slippery is not the same. Balancing at height is not the same as balancing at a low level. Balancing when there's a a real danger involved is not the same as balancing when it's all relatively safe. How do you prepare for all these different demands that that they are physical or mental, that they are environmental demands or situational demands? How do you prepare and develop competency for all these demands? If you reduce your balancing uh, practice to one or two drills, always the same, in the same environment, you call them functional. Where's the naturalness? Where's the adaptability? Where's the practicality? Where's the, the frequency? Where is the, but most importantly, where's the adaptability? Where's the diversity? People in uh, the the functional fitness world, they always talk about the set principle, specific adaptation to imposed demand. Why don't you guys practice it more? Because in most functional programs I see out there, there's very little set principle. And I was just giving an example about balancing because now if you apply the same approach to climbing, crawling, Jumping, running, even walking, all the get ups and get downs, and of course, lifting and carrying and throwing and catching, then you realize that so called functional
0: programs are extremely limited hmm. that's a really good point, so I have a question for you let's let's put this to application and and yeah. I, and I realize that it's taking it. A little bit about, uh, we're we're structuring now, and and I know that's not your game, you don't really do structure, but there's an application, because we want to be able to take what we learn, and we want to apply it to the circumstances in our lives. So, uh, as I suggested to you before the show, I work with a lot of obstacle athletes, and there are actually certifications for developing these athletes for the challenges they face. Uh, I am not providing one of them. Um, I'm more an observer in this respect. Uh, I do work on running mechanics, uh, which is really what I'm known for. But my question to you is this. I try to analyze, I mean, I should also preface it by telling you that you know I'm at an age now where I, I no longer concern myself with competition. I'm 63 years old and <laughs> I'm the epitome of the zoo human. But the point I'm getting at is that uh, I, sa- I stand out and I watch these athletes compete and I look at the challenges they're facing. For example, they have to run and maybe run to a um, a rig they refer to it as where they have to do hand over hand through various grips and then jump off the rig and then run again and then maybe have to hurdle a wall or climb over or under something um, you know run or swim and then so these applications I like to believe do replicate the the nature of natural functionality but uh, they're artificially prescribed, so, in other words, we're not just climbing over a wall or, or or climbing over a tree or climbing up a rock. You know these are unnatural obstacles that they place in different regions because it's it's a money making thing it's it's a sport it's a competition. But my question is, I know a lot of these guys are chasing down these training systems that, as you suggested, Uh, may be aspiring to be functional, but in fact, they really are not natural movement patterns. What would you suggest to someone that is trying to improve as an obstacle racing athlete to be the type of prescription they should follow as a standard preparatory go-to type of system? So in other words, I guess I'm asking you, they're going to do the things they do, but what would be a very good preparatory movement pattern that they should follow in order to to become better at what they're doing.
1: So what you're asking me is how basically how would I train guys who prepare for a
0: OCR? Yes, well, let's give you an example. I come to you and I'm an OCR athlete. I'm at the top of my game and I want to maintain the top of my game or I want to improve. And you know my traditional approach to to training is I I put in. A reasonable amount of running, let's just say, for example, I'm running, say, 30, 40 miles a week, and I go to a gym, maybe a CrossFit gym, and I do a lot of strength exercises that are typical of a CrossFit gym, and I try to do the disciplines that are going to be the challenge, for example, going across a horizontal ladder, climbing a rope, and so that's a traditional approach to training. What would you do different? and why would you do it?
1: Um, well, first off, uh, MoveNet is a method that um, can employ structure. We actually have programs for uh, our licensees. We uh, even have specific equipment that's adjustable with bars, horizontal bars that can be placed at an angle or at different heights, bars that are flat or rounded stable or unstable um, the point here uh, that I want to make is that when it comes to natural movement and especially natural movement coaching and natural movement training um, it's not random, it, it is structured, it is structured and it can be done indoors, indoors or outdoors, it doesn't matter too much that it is indoors or outdoors, what matters is that it is structured Structured uh, at first When you learn new techniques, um, you've got to remove the idea of unpredictability of the environment, which is what you find in nature. It's all unpredictable, and it's not manageable. It's not controlled. So it's very difficult to um, ensure safe progressions and scalability. So that's why we have a method called MoveNet. and secondly, um, we also use structure for specific results. For instance, uh, got the chance to train, um, you know, top-ranking MMA fighter Carlos Condit for his last two two camps for his last two fights. And um, I used, of course, I used tons of natural movements for his training, but none of that was random. They were all specific, uh, specifically chosen. To ensure some uh, some developments and some improvements to his movements, specific not only to fighting but also specific to uh, a particular game plan and opponent. So that's also some of the ways you can use the move net move net system. Um, so when it comes to uh, obstacle courses uh, and races. Um, I am not a huge believer, not a huge believer, I'm not a a huge proponent of what's called GPP, which is basically what CrossFit does. And uh, and let me explain to you. Um, GPP, general physical preparedness, is made of a series of functional drills, such as you do pull-ups, you know, you do burpees, you do things like that. you know, in Russia, GPP was designed for children, not for elite athletes, not for uh, not for specialized athletes. It was for children until at some point they could become more specialized in the sport. Um, I've I've seen too many um, too many people training in, in those ways and thinking that they have they are perfectly functional. And yes, they are more functional than people who say, you know, do bodybuilding, but they're not as functional as people who really understand the value and the power of the set principle, specific adaptation to imposed demand. So let let me give you an example. When you jump a hundred times up and down apply a plyo box for stamina, for whatever you think is good for accuracy, stamina, climatrics, coordination, things like that. The typical functional exercise. Well, and you do that relatively mindlessly because the truth is that you're trying to always beat your personal record. You always go for, you know, high intensity, metabolic conditioning kind of mindset. So the technique itself is not really important. The, the movement pattern, it's going to be sloppy. It doesn't matter because what matters is, in the end, what matters is, you know, the clock, the watch, the numbers, the curves. Well, here's my problem with that. And there are several. Number one, this is one type of jump. It's, uh, it, and that's one type of environment. And you do it, say, 50 times, 100 times, or for 10 minutes in a row will that prepare you for that one single obstacle that involves one single jump with maybe a landing that is challenging? Maybe the landing is on a a surface that is relatively small, maybe uneven, maybe a bit slippery, and there's a real gap. And then you have maybe a run-up. So you need to have a few steps. You need to make sure that you are really stepping really good so that you can, you know, accurately, so that you can launch that jump. And then you have to be super mindful and focused by the time you land. And then your landing has to be impeccable. Otherwise, you fall. Otherwise, you waste time. Otherwise, maybe you hurt yourself. All right. So my question is, do you really believe that doing 50 or 100 repetitions of a sloppy pattern on a single, that's a single jumping movement pattern on a single type of environment is going to prepare you for a diversity of jumps. The truth is that it won't. It won't prepare you in terms of movement patterns, in in terms of techniques. won't prepare you in in terms of adaptability. Um, It won't prepare you in terms of performance, basically. So, that is where that general physical preparedness approach fails via fleet. That is looking for uh, adaptability, competency, and, and, and to be more realistic about their own ability to, to be competent and adaptable when it comes to obstacles and all types of real-world challenges, that there are challenges in terms of the diversity of environment or the diversity of situations, so that's um, you know that's why, yeah, well, if you don't have a lot of time then you 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 do your GPP and that's fine, and that's probably probably the best approach. But if you have more time to train, then you probably want to train specifically to every different type of movement pattern an environment that you will be exposed to and challenged by during a race. Doing pull-ups on a regular pull-up bar, that's very different than, say, doing one climbing movement that may involve that you uh, hook your leg, that you swing the opposite leg, that, you know, you, you're going to have a diversity of climbing strategies, say, when you want to climb on top of the horizontal bar, or a traverse horizontal bar, that might be you know, three times much thicker than a regular pull-up bar. So even when it comes to GPP, the single fact that you can and should um, challenge yourself with a more diverse environment is very important. For instance, when it comes to doing pull-ups, even though you may not want to train other climbing techniques, well, at least you could do your pull ups on a thicker bar or a bar that is unstable. Why? Because while the movement pattern itself does not change, it's still a pull up, but the grid strength that's required or stability that's required is different. And that prepares you better than just doing the same old pull ups at the same rate on the same bar all the time. That's just one example. And I could give you. Many other examples like that, that uh, that have to do with balancing or running or jumping or crawling, all these diverse, um, you know, movement challenges that you will will be exposed to in an obstacle uh, obstacle course race.
0: You've absolutely got my attention. I'm fascinated by your approach. I think I think that it's important, and I, I think that well, I know that half the reason that I asked you to do this with me today is because. I wanted people to get a chance to get exposed to that thought process because we tend to get stuck in a box, so to speak, with the way we approach our training. And we mimic each other. And, you know, they say that two wrongs don't make a right. Um, Just because someone's beating you doesn't mean that their training is better than yours. It could very well be that your your training is worse than theirs. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, I mean, it's just, the the idea of, like for example, um, from sitting most of the day, we develop some inhibitions. Our, our ligaments and tendons are not as supple as they might be had we been living a life where we're moving around more often, changing directions, uh, having to mechanize our bodies in, in varieties of paths, right? So we, we don't, we're kind of stuck. And so I think a lot of what we have to do um, in our environment and with our lifestyles, is correct a lot of the flaws in the way we move. Would you agree with that? We're not starting off like you suggested earlier, your children have perfect squats because they've not been exposed to the corruptions in the lifestyles that we have over the years, right? So it's kind of a corrective process more than anything else.
1: Right. My, my children
0: won't be exposed to uh,
1: those conventions and those limitations, that's for sure. They will grew up doing tons of movement and tons of natural movements. And, and if they're going to do sitting, because sitting is, uh, sitting is not bad. Sitting is a natural position or even a natural movement. You can do sitting movement. Um, but again, it's how we sit that is the problem. It's where we sit and the fact that we sit on chairs and that we sit for way too long in the same position. That is the problem were to sit uh, the same amount of time, but on diverse, um, you know, diverse supports, diverse s- surfaces, and always switching position all the time, because you can bend your leg, you can uh, extend your leg, you can, uh, you know, bring your legs, bent legs to the side, and there are, you know, many, many sit positions, and therefore many sit Transitions from sit position to sit position. So, if we're, we were to just do that, that would definitely uh, keep us more flexible, more, you know, preserve our mobility or even develop our mobility again when we've lost it. So, yeah, there is the training that you do at a given time of the day, maybe every day because you're committed, but then there's the bulk of your movement behavior along the day and that matters tremendously people tend to neglect that aspect but if you were to be able to uh, inject if I may say put more movement in that the bulk of your wake time Say you awake for I don't know 16 hours a day on average how much of these 16 hours are dedicated not to training for a race, but just dedicated to movement and natural movements and natural positions. How much time do you spend not only sitting in diverse ways, natural ways, but also kneeling? There are diverse ways to kneel, and you can do so many transitions from sitting to kneeling to squatting to deep knee bend to. All these, you know. So, if you were to be able to do that um, a few minutes, several times a day, that would be a tremendous advantage to you. Uh, because in the end, the body that performs these movements along the day, and the body that does the, the hard, intense training at the gym, and the body that does the hard, intense performance during a race—that's the same body. That's the same person. So the more input, the more frequent your movement, and especially your natural movement behavior during a day, the more functional the body. And these movements are not about intensity. They don't strain you. They are low impact. But they will allow you to better handle high impact movements and high-intensity movements. But if you can't really squat or kneel uh, or do get-ups and get-downs with no hands, if you don't have that basic uh, level of function, if you can't do all these movements easily at any time, then you're very, very prone to injury when you're going to do high-intensity movements and high-impact movements.
0: That's for sure. I would agree with that look can we talk about your your workshops your certification i i think you're you're based in uh, in New mexico correct yeah that's where i live I
1: live in santa fe New mexico but um i have a team of instructors and we hold workshops uh around the world basically uh right now one of uh Verdi is in japan and uh you know we do we've done South Africa and we do europe and um Canada and, of course, a lot in, in the U.S.
0: And do you have anything planned in the near future that people could uh, look into? Um, if people want to train firsthand with me,
1: um, there is a, a three-day retreat uh, that's in my home turf of Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's uh, coming up in May. Um and um, yeah, that's the one you wanna you wanna check out. But if it's uh, too far for you, and then you wanna check out training and certification workshops uh, nationwide, um, if you are in the U.S. with with some of my instructors, and they are they are highly trained, they are they are highly competent in teaching you techniques. You know, because again, uh, the performance in an obstacle race is obviously not just uh, physical preparation in terms of, you know, work capacity and you know just how fast you can run or uh, how many pull-ups you can do. It's really also a lot about technique because you can save tons of energy uh, when you are more technical. And uh, and improving your technique sometimes is just a matter of a change of position of your foot, change of position of your hand, um, adjusting your base of support. Um, that can be better posture, better breathing, that can be just learning to relax as you move more. Um, Yeah. It's not just uh, the, uh, you know, the the, the raw output. It's also about the quality of your movement and your
0: movement behavior. I would agree with that as well. Now, I would uh, ask you, is there a limitation? I mean, do you do you need to come to one of your workshops with a certain amount of skill or physical fitness, or can just about anybody get in there, draw benefit, and not walk away feeling like, oh, my God, I couldn't do all that?
1: Right, absolutely, because um, we have level one, level two, level three. So the level one is the most accessible to absolutely, absolutely anyone. Like before we say... Uh, before people learn to jump, they they learn to squat and do a hip hinge, and then they start to jump at at ground level, two or three feet distance. But what they learn is to establish proper movement. You know, so there's a difference between natural movement uh, and efficient movement. The same way there's a difference between natural running and efficient running. You know, the difference between natural and, and proper or efficient. So, what we teach people is to move naturally in the most efficient way possible, and that's why we teach techniques and that is why everybody starts at the the, the lowest level of intensity or or uh, or even of lowest level of environmental complexity uh, another another example when it comes to uh, to traversing uh, horizontal bar uh we're gonna start teaching the hang you know active hang and then the side swing traverse uh, side swing uh on the spot and then the side swing traverse which is a relatively slow but um very energy effective method for traversing uh horizontal bar um <clears throat> but then they will start people will start to pull and they will start to hoot their legs and they will start to actually learn ways to climb on top of the bar, which is obviously much more challenging. When it comes to balancing, uh, they will do the, the techniques first on the two by four, on the floor, on the ground. So there's no, it's flat, it's stable, it's uh, wide enough, and, and you can start learning techniques that way, and then, then you will transition towards more elevated surfaces Rounded surfaces and stable surfaces, inclined and inclined surfaces etc so it's not just a, a progression in terms of uh, techniques from easy to difficult or techniques that are uh, less demanding in strength and more demanding in strength, that's also progressions in terms of the environment and the difficulty of the environmental variables where you apply the technique. A bro jump is a bro jump. First, you need to learn efficient bro jump. Then you will look for intensity, volume, and also environments where you jump that are more challenging, less safe, um, more real, more real, and more fun.
0: Well, it sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like it'd be... uh... A precursor to pretty much any type of activity that someone would want to get into. Make sure that they have yeah. regained the natural uh, yeah. capacities of the body.
1: And, and you know, really, everybody everybody uh, uh, can gain. Um, we have uh, we have a lot of uh, healthcare practitioners, and uh, so there are chiropractors, or you know, some physical therapists of some sort, and they 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 wanna they're interested in in how you know, the move, the body is supposed to, to move originally and naturally, but also interested in being able to teach some of these movements to their clients because a lot of those, you know, physical, physiological, functional issues that people, you know, have in their lives and that limit their movement, limit their comfort, uh, have to do with movement behavior, a lack of movement behavior, uh lack of... Again, a lack of uh, variability, diversity, a lack of naturalness, a lack of frequency. Um, but the, that's the cause of most uh, physical ailments—not all of them, but a lot of them—and right. that's also the solution. Movement behavior is also the solution to lots of uh, physical issues. You know, um, but um, so that that works, and that's highly beneficial to you know well, we would say the average Joe and Jane, you know, the average person, uh, but also beneficial to the, the elite athlete. Again, uh, I'll give you the example of Carlos Condit. You know, after 13 years of professional fighting, he said that he's never felt that, you know, that better in his body and that good in his body and, and that prepared for his fight uh, after weeks of, of movement training. Uh, when I trained... Um, I trained the SILs at their base of, uh, of Coronado in California. Um, what we did is that we went through their obstacle course the way they the way they normally do it. So, and then I invited them to do it differently. So, for instance, there's that Burma Bridge. The Burma Bridge is uh, something around 50 yards, uh, and then it's uh, you know you place your it's uh, maybe 12, 12 yards, uh, like, uh, less than 30 feet high. And then you place your feet, uh, on the, on the, on the rope. And then you can hold on each side of, 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 uh, the obstacle. You can hold with your, with your, with your hands, and hang with your hands. Okay. So, well, we would do that same thing, but from underneath. So we would make it a traverse and I would use the side swing traverse of them to be able to traverse um in the most relaxed and uh, an energy energy effective way possible instead of doing what i call the the power traverse and you know you bending your arms and muscling the whole way um or uh we would do what what they call the dirty the dirty name obstacle so dirty name is called dirty name because when you miss you hurt yourself so bad that uh, you break a rib or something and so uh, well no need to explain <laughs> why it's called the dirty name right. guys will, will curse every time they miss or fall or, or hurt themselves it's made of three um, super thick uh, beams rounded beams uh, and you you jump and land and they are you know they're, they are the same distance but they are higher and higher so they are Three different heights going up in height. And um, what I would teach the guys is what happens if you miss. So what happens if you miss, but not to the point where you fall down on the uh, in the sand, uh, you end up hanging on your forearms. And how do you reestablish your position? Instead of just dropping and doing it all over again, how can you reestablish a position so you can get on top and jump again to the next one? and we would use a technique that we we call in MoveNAT, the pop-up, um, and um, that's something, that some of the techniques that we train, and they've never done that, they have never done anything like that before, because they, you know, they thought of, okay, that's the kind of obstacle that's difficult, and that we may have to to cross and clear, but if we miss, we just do it again, and what I say is that what if you miss, but you don't completely miss? It's not a complete failure. You just, you're just hanging there. You're still hanging. You still can restore your position and keep going. You don't have to fall necessarily. So what are your options? And then I would lead them through all of these different obstacles, and we would often do them in different way, uh, in the reverse way, or, and think about, hey, so that would give us new opportunities and we also think of what happens if we miss, but we're not, we're not failing yet. What are our abilities and our potential options and strategies to restore our
0: position and, and keep going? Wow. And can you tell me, on average, what, how much quicker were they able to get through the courses?
1: Um, we, I have relatively limited time. To train them so we I, I, I didn't have an opportunity to do timing and things like that unfortunately um, but you know simply having at least one option and sometimes more but depending also you know the the number of options you have depends also on an obstacle itself sometimes an obstacle gives you three diverse options to clear it and sometimes there is only one single option basically there's no option um and so uh you know what happens when you have to when you're half falling or you are in a suboptimal position and you know what can you do well that depends on the environment itself but definitely um uh, if that makes the difference between falling and having to resume of uh, the obstacle or passing it even though you 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 know you lost some time bec- because you had an issue uh, it's still a, a better, it's still better, you know.
0: Sure.
1: Still much better. Um, but uh, you know, you would be surprised, really, at how many athletes that there are MMA athletes or uh, military athletes because the seals are, you know, they are real well gentlemen, these guys, but they are also uh, they're like mili- military athletes have problems performing the simplest movements. So, for instance, what I call the, the split-squat reverse. You're balancing on a surface in a split-squat position. And then while looking straight in front of you, uh, you, re- you pivot on your feet and you reverse your position to the opposite direction. right? Opposite orientation. Um, and if you can do that without falling, without being off-balance, without... Uh, trying to counterbalance with your arms without holding your breath and getting stiff all over then you're competent in that particular balancing movement but you would be amazed at how uh, surprised people are, people who've never trained this movement for instance uh, how they're challenged and surprised by, by you know how their people really get in trouble, these are really basic movements so one of the things that I told them is that if you are already in trouble with a simple balancing movement like that, basically you are surviving the movement, how much, uh, how much is left for situational awareness, for thinking about what is your next move, what, should, what is it that you do, need to do next? You can't think about any of that. You can't assess situations because you are fully absorbed to doing one thing struggling with the movement surviving the movement and try to restore your balance and, and your position so there is a, in my opinion in the whole athletic world uh, elite physical preparation world there is really a misunderstanding in the, uh, about the importance of the most fundamental movements
0: Wow. Uh, just wow. It's just so powerful stuff. But I want to thank well, you for... I'm glad
1: if I provided uh, some insights that, uh, you know, uh, people find valuable and want to explore uh, that it is on their own or maybe come train with us. Um, and, um, and Richard, I'll be happy to, to do another podcast with you anytime.
0: Oh, man, I would love to do that. Uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around coming to New Mexico. Sure, that would be a great idea. Well, you know, maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll get you out here when I do some workshops here. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? It's it's been on my mind. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for um, you know giving me the chance to uh, talk a bit about my approach, and uh, hopefully it's helpful to uh, some
0: of your some of the people
1: who are listening to us today.
0: I guarantee you've got them thinking right now. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.